Hi, this is Morgan Michael welcoming you to Kindsight 101, the podcast, where you'll hear from world-renowned educational leaders about the mobilizing power of kindness. I believe that we all have an innate need to be seen, heard, and understood. When we dedicate ourselves to kindness, the ripple effects in our schools can be life-changing. Through this podcast, I want to challenge you to question your assumptions, amplify your insight, and embrace a willingness to go beyond the status quo in education. Together, let's learn how to make a big impact, one small act at a time. You know, one of my favorite parts of recording this podcast is that I get to speak to a ton of incredible people who are doing what they are meant to do. And today, I'm going to introduce you to someone who is doing just that and encouraging his students to connect to their hidden potential too. In this episode, you'll learn the one thing you need to reach your most at-risk learners. You'll understand how to encourage students to become agents of their own learning through four types of inquiry instruction tangible ways to develop positive self-talk in your students, and the importance of making yourself vulnerable in the eyes of your students. Enjoy! Trevor McKenzie is an award-winning high school teacher in Victoria, Canada, who believes in preparing his students for the 21st century through an innovative, inquiry-based approach. He is the author of Dive Into Inquiry and Inquiry Mindset, which he co-authored with Rebecca Bathurst-Hunt. You can find him at Trev underscore McKenzie and trevormckenzie.com. For more information, visit my website, smallactbigimpact.com, and search for episode 11. I want to thank you for the wonderful reviews that you've left for this podcast on iTunes. Your reviews make a big difference in helping other educators find this show. If you think that I'm doing good work here and you'd like others to get inspired and join our 21-day kindness challenge and movement, I'd love it if you would take a minute, head over to iTunes, and leave a review. Thank you so much. Trevor, thank you so much for joining us on the Small Act Big Impact Kindness Podcast. It's wonderful to have you on. I am so thrilled to be here, finally. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I want to jump right in, and I, I want to start by speaking about the one question that changed the life of Garrison and ultimately changed the trajectory of your career. As I understand it, Garrison was a student that you taught from about grade 9 to 12, and you had made it your personal mission to be his champion. His brother had not graduated, and you wanted him to defy the odds of his experiential context. So you invested a great deal of time with him, bought him lunches when he came to school without one. And, and even, and this really touched me, uh, you would stop by on his way to school to knock on the door to his house and, and give him a wake up call to ensure he made it to school on time. True story. True story. Yeah. Like that's amazing. But somehow that wasn't enough. And in grade 12, despite your best efforts, he stopped attending. And I know Many teachers and many educational leaders have had experience with high-risk children and youth, and it's easy to kind of want to throw up our hands and give up on them. Can you tell the audience about that experience and what compelled you to keep trying, and what did you do that finally reached him? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it it should be stated right away that, you know, all of my experiences with Garrison and students like Garrison were really supported by courageous leadership and courageous staff, you know, my colleagues and my, my men team 
we're, we're all in with our vulnerable students and for all of our students for that matter. But, you know, that story with regard to me stopping by Garrison's house uh, and knocking on his door in the morning, and I think back, oh, my gosh, I did that for Garrison. <laughs> uh, you know, my principal was fully supportive and fully wanting us as a staff to try our best to connect with Garrison. And Garrison, for three years previous, uh, you know, he was the student who would fail my class uh, come June. And somehow in September, he would be, you know, placed back in my class the following year. And I think it was because the counselors at our school knew that we had a strong relationship. And despite, Mm -hmm. quote unquote, success not happening, at the very least, we had relationship with Garrison, or, or I did for that matter. So there was this, you know, really whirlwind cycle, this spiral of you know, he'd show up in class, he'd be really charismatic, he'd be engaged. And then as soon as it was time to hand in an assignment or start to, you know, I'd start to assess some of Garrison's body of work. uh, And there wasn't a body of work. (laughs) Garrison would start to disappear from class. And it was like that from grade nine, all the way up through grade 11. And so when grade 12 came around, um, you know, the same uh, sadly, habits showed. And, and after a couple weeks, a couple months, Garrison would slowly disappear and he eventually stopped coming to class. And when I said, say, stop coming to class, you know, I didn't see him there for a month. You know, mm-hmm. he was just not in class, but he was in school, which says a lot about our vulnerable students is that they do want relationship, mm. but what they struggle with is relevance. They, a lot of our vulnerable students don't see the point in school and what we're doing in class. And Garrison was that student. He, he was super charismatic, super engaging, as well as engaged when it was relevant to him. But he just did not, quote unquote, buy in. And he was really good at hoop jumping. But as soon as the hoops got really meaningful, you know, when it became for marks, mm-hmm. uh, he would stop attending class. And so, uh, you know, again, going back to the staff, like, oh, gosh, the staff that worked with Garrison, we when I say we were all in, we were doing things that, you know, we weren't doing for other students, whether it was driving to his house to try to get him to come to school or you know, when the bell would go for class, rather than walk to our classrooms, we would walk to the skate park across the street to <laughs> Harrison over to the school, right? It was like, he was on our minds. And so, sadly, when he disappeared there in grade 12, um, I was going for a coffee one day at lunch, and I was driving by the skate park. And I saw Garrison skateboarding there. And so I rolled down my window and invited him out for coffee. Again, courageous leadership that gives us freedom to connect with students that really do need us, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I took him out for coffee there in Vic West uh, in Esquimalt where I used to teach. And over coffee, I asked Garrison one simple, and now it seems so blatantly obvious, but it was super transformational at the time. I just asked Garrison, what do you truly love to do? You know, if I saw you on the weekend doing something that you enjoy doing, what would that thing be? And Garrison said graffiti art. And I was floored. I had no idea that Garrison was an artist, let alone an artist that shares his work so publicly. Mm. And so I asked Garrison, you know, could you tell me more about that? And he said, well, why don't I show you? And so we got back in my car and we drove a few blocks uh, in Vic West and we hiked over these uh, railroad tracks to this abandoned warehouse. And literally it was like 400 feet worth of warehouse wall, concrete wall was his work. And I was floored. You know, mm-hmm. I had my phone out. And I was taking all these photos and Garrison was looking at me like I was crazy uh, because I don't think he really saw 
the value of what I was witnessing. He really didn't believe in it as I was seeing it was so powerful. Mm-hmm. And I was floored for a number of reasons. You know, I was floored because it was beautiful. You know, I'm not an artist, nor am I a graffiti artist, but I could see the beauty in it uh, and the talent that he possessed. And I was floored because he was so willing to share this publicly with an audience, but he was not handing in any work in class. And then I was floored because I was seeing theme and I was seeing symbolism and I was seeing metaphor and all those pieces that were part of my assessment as an English teacher that I never saw from Garrison. I was seeing here in his graffiti art. So, you know, I asked Garrison in that moment on those tracks, uh, you know, could you do something with graffiti art? And he said, sure. When do you want it by? And with students like Garrison, it's like, we'll take anything we get when we <laughs> And I said, anytime, Garrison. And he said, sure. And so the next day, I kid you not, he came to school. And it was the first day we had seen him in class in like a month, just over a month. And he marched over to my desk at the back of the room and he emphatically handed in this paper. And so I kind of dropped everything and got my students going on a task and just so I could read Garrison's work. And, and it was good. Like, I wouldn't say it was great, but it was not only was it good, it was like, it was the most I'd seen from him ever, which was Mm -hmm. a huge victory for Garrison. And so right in that moment, I called over Garrison and I saw an opportunity to kind of leverage his love for graffiti art so I can get more to assess from him. Because this paper was, again, the first thing I'd seen from him in all the years I had taught him. And so I said, you know, could you do more with graffiti art, Garrison? And he said, sure, what, what do you want me to do? And I said, well, I've got these photos on my phone. Could you do something with them? And he said, sure, give me your phone. And so I thought he was going to go to a laptop or go download the photos. But instead, he literally walked to the front of the class and started to speak to the class and swipe through the photos and he was doing a presentation talking about what we had experienced the day before and he was telling us the story of graffiti art Mm -hmm. and I was floored like again shock 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 you know I took out my grade book and I started to take notes and and as students would ask Garrison questions about the colors he was using in his art you know Garrison would talk about symbolism and I was highlighting this in my grade book You know, as they were asking him about the phrases he was using, Garrison would talk about theme. And again, I was writing in my gradebook. And there were all these pieces that I needed to assess in Garrison's body of work that were just surfacing from this conversation around graffiti art. And so for the rest of the year, you know, it was graffiti art 100% of the time. It was when we were doing Hamlet, Garrison was doing, you know, a research paper into, you know, the roots of graffiti art. Or when we were doing a persuasive essay around you know, globalization, he was doing a persuasive essay to the mayor of Esquimalt trying to convince her to legalize graffiti art in some of our public spaces. And so, you know, at the time, I thought it was it it was like, you know, really transformational in the sense that, you know, I I never experienced something so personalized with a student before. Um, But now I see it as being transformational, because it was just such a, a simple question that I asked. And when you ask that simple question of your students, or of yourself, and it, open, it opens up doors to possibilities and opportunities that you never imagined could come true in the classroom. That's where I really look back at that story as being kind of that fork for me in my, in my growth as, a, as an educator and in my adoption of an inquiry approach more holistically. You know, Garrison was, you know, the student who convinced me that all of my students deserve what he experienced. It shouldn't just be our vulnerable students. It should be every student deserves the right to explore their passions and their interests and their curiosities. So I have a lot to thank for Garrison. You know, he, he, he taught me a lot. And, and uh, again, I look back at that moment as being kind of the moment for me. 
That's such a beautiful story. And I just think, I think on some level, it, it really resonates with me. And just in terms of how much you were able to kind of get beyond the walls of the classroom and see the student for who he was, what he was bringing, and the expertise and art that he had within him already. And with your ability, you were able to shift his thinking and align it with yours in terms of valuing that. Because I think sometimes with school, we get so bogged down in what things should look like and the grades and the outcomes. And it's really, really easy to value a certain type of skill over another, or even to not really see the essence of a student and really see them as a number or as their skills or even as their deficiency, because all you want for them is to be successful in accordance to whatever metric it is that you might be using that day or that week or, or whatever. And so I think this is the beauty of inquiry is the fact that it opens up everything in the classroom to who are these students who are before us and giving you the ability to get to know them and for them to get to know themselves. Can you tell me a little bit about what inquiry means to you and and what it is? Yeah, you know, inquiry for me, uh, you know, I think it's very powerful for two big reasons. I think, as I shared with Garrison, you know, it really does honor the whole child that, you know, holistically, you know, it's much more than, you know, disciplines and subjects and content. It really is, you know, creating empathy. It's creating confidence. It's, it's creating some honesty and vulnerability in learning and having students feel empowered with that honesty and that vulnerability through self-reflection and through taking a genuine agency over their learning. Um, you know, it, it, the inquiry classroom is not a, a consume, consume, consume teacher learner relationship. It is kind of a partnership navigating through learning and sharing those responsibilities and the heavy lifting of learning. And I think for me, that's really where it's truly meaningful with a student is that the self-regulation, the social emotional learning that occurs in inquiry is super, super powerful and, and meaningful and it's authentic. So, you know, I think inquiry honors the whole student, the whole child, but I also think inquiry better prepares students for the world of tomorrow. I think some of the skills and the dispositions and the character that really is being kind of sharpened and elevated in, in inquiry, those are the pieces that are going to prepare our kids for the world of tomorrow and the uncertainty of tomorrow. And, and we hear this in, in the educational kind of sphere, the, the global discourse around learning and teaching and education is that, you know, content and memorization of facts and consuming content isn't enough anymore. So what is a, a pedagogical model, a teaching and learning uh, environment that we can adopt that lets go of that consume content and passive learning model and truly gives our students responsibility over learning and have them reflect on these dispositions of, you know, being a creator, being an innovator, being someone who's reflective in their learning and then demonstrating that growth mindset and persistence in moving forward to, to grow and to change and to adapt. So I think inquiry is really powerful in those two uh, faculties, both in honoring the whole child and then in, in also preparing them for the world of tomorrow. And so in order to, to do that, to transition into the inquiry classroom, for me, it really is a scaffolded approach to inquiry where I'm modeling my own inquiry throughout the year and throughout, especially the onset of, of the year. I'm really kind of in control of the inquiry, if you will. I'm really you know, sharing my thoughts and sharing my reflections out loud. And, and all of that is quite intentional for my students so they could hear 
how learning sounds to me, uh, both with regards to the questions I'm asking and, you know, the resources that I'm pulling in to help deepen our understanding of these big questions. And through that modeling, what we're doing is we're giving our students the tools and the understandings to essentially become inquirers themselves. Because as we know, as parents, you know, our students or sorry, our children are naturally inquirers, aren't they? They're, mm -hmm. they're discovery focused. They're exploring the world around them. Those why questions are just constant in our young children's lives and somewhere in their learning throughout, you know, the younger years in school, that natural curiosity and that discovery becomes a little dulled and, and the edges of that curiosity become a little bit rounded. And so mm -hmm. by the time they get into high school, I really have to spark that that high interest and that natural curiosity again. And, and so part of that is me modeling that through asking big questions and showing my excitement for learning uh, and then slowly again transitioning into a classroom where the students have more control over those big components of inquiry and that's a whole nother podcast like yeah. <laughs> what are the components of inquiry and how do we roll it out effectively but I do want to model my passion for learning and my passion for teaching and my thinking aloud so that in transitioning into a classroom where they have more agency over learning they've heard me and they've they've heard those that metacognitive side to learning so they can apply it to their own learning. How does that sound to you? That's that's exactly. Yeah, I mean there are so many different jump off points that I could go here. So I really love the idea of the teacher actually being able to pursue sort of failure rich experiences themselves and then show that learning as you say and model it as it happens or at least reflect upon it and share that with your students. There's been a lot of research around sharing uh, vulnerable or even embarrassing moments with with either uh, your students or your colleagues or the people, you know, your employees and how that can actually spark um, quite a bit of creativity and just the ability for them to let go and actually take risks themselves. So by modeling that, what you what you are creating as a leader is this environment where failure, quote unquote, is is embraced, and the whole idea that we're learning through these challenges, and that it's not really about the end product; it's about the process of getting there. So. I'm just thinking, how did living through the process of inquiry yourself, whether it is through, you know, writing a book or even the whole process of rolling out inquiry and the trial and error of maybe it worked, maybe it didn't. And, and I can imagine you had moments that, that now you reflect upon that were just really difficult to get through. So how does that actually support your own students, um, when they're going through the inquiry process, if that makes sense. It does. And that's a great question. You know, Garrison, as I said, he really inspired me to, to transform what my classroom looked like, you know? And so, um, after that experience with Garrison and after he graduated in June, you know, I went back to the drawing board as we do after we recover through July, we revisit our practice in August kind of. And, and I really was re-energized to come back into the classroom and do more of what I had experienced with Garrison. And I was super gung-ho and I was really enthusiastic and I was a cheerleader of this new idea with my students that we were about to embark on. But what I failed to recognize was that the, the power of scaffolding and the power mm. of modeling through a transition into inquiry. And so for that first year back, I kind of threw my kids into the deep end. You know, I, I said this experience that I had last year with Garrison was super powerful. I shared with them Garrison's story. I was modeling. I was intentional. 
but I threw them into the deep end way too soon without those skills and understandings that students need when having agency over learning. And what I mean by agency is, you know, authentic control over the, the, the learning, the content, the question, the research. And I support them as a facilitator in that ecosystem of learning. I support them with structure and, and processes and support. However, they have, a, you know, a ton of authentic responsibility in that ecosystem. And, and so I just, I toss them into the deep end way too soon and too enthusiastically. They were really <laughs> overwhelmed. And, and that caused a lot of anxiety, a lot of stress, a lot of nerves. And so when we talked, or when I mentioned previously about the social emotional side to learning, that this was really it. It kind of smacked me in the face. I, I knew that I had to revisit how to scaffold properly, how to mm -hmm. model, and what does it look like to make that holistic change, that big transformation from the traditional classroom to the inquiry classroom. And once I figured out that scaffolding, and it took me a few years, to be honest, to figure out, okay, what's the timing? Uh, and then also, how do I know if my students are ready for a transition? How do I, like, what, what kind of data do I need to collect? Is it observational? Is it anecdotal? Is it hard data? Um, but once I figured out what the process was, I came to the understanding that even if I have a strong structure, a strong scaffolded approach to transitioning into inquiry, you know, with our bell schedules and with our, our semester systems, you know, our students are literally changing frameworks hour by hour by hour throughout mm -hmm. the day. So they'll be with a teacher who teaches in a completely different style, a non-inquiry approach, and the bell would go. And in that five minutes... I'm expecting them to come to my class and ready to take on more ownership and more meaningful a more meaningful role in their learning. Mm -hmm. it, it's it's impossible. Like that five minutes is hardly enough time for them to use the restroom, get some water, and have a snack. Right. Let alone shift mentally for this different role in learning. So really, what I've learned to do over my years is to and it sounds so simple, but to slow down, uh, take a breath, which is probably what I haven't modeled in this podcast. <laughs> It's been go, go, go. But uh, I'm so excited to share. So forgive me. But really to slow down and let go of some of those ideas of what I thought was were, were good in my practice and really aim for great in my practice. And by letting go of some of those things that were good, you know, it really freed me up to let the great grow and just like settle down into the moment and help my students settle down into the moment. You know, just today I was watching my students come into class and it was such a beautiful thing. The first 10 minutes, not a single student took out their phone. They were talking to each other. Uh, they were kind of self-regulating, right? That's what mm -hmm. our students naturally do. That socialization is self-regulating into learning. And so I just let that social time kind of bubble over for 10, 15 minutes before I even, and I was going around the room connecting with students, but before I kind of wedged my way into the plan for the day, I was just so thrilled that there were no phones out. And so <laughs> you just, you, by letting go of, what we think we need to get done with our students to let some great things happen. I think that was another big shift in my practice. So, you know, definitely I kicked my kids into the deep end too fast, too soon. And then even in revamping that structure, I really have to be mindful minute by minute, hour by hour throughout my day to truly meet the needs of my students because we're asking a lot of them in their eight hours that they're with us at school, you know, and, and to really be mindful of that as they enter our classrooms. Absolutely. And it's it's great that you're talking about the structure. And I, I don't want to go too much into it because I think people can definitely pick up either one of your your two amazing books. But I do want to touch on it briefly, if that's okay with you. So, Absolutely. So really, when inquiry-based learning, personalized learning, 
project-based learning first became sort of the buzzword or buzzwords, I have to admit I was kind of skeptical. So my doubt was founded in this, you know, all of the misconceptions that kind of come around that type of learning. So I thought it was, you know, this choose your own adventure, devoid of formative and summative assessment, that there was no structure, no measurable learning. I worried that our students would lose their competitive advantage to get into good universities because they wouldn't have the strong foundations in literacy and numeracy. And I worried, you know, that maybe even lazy teaching would result in kids quote, getting away with doing, you know, the same project over and over because I thought it'd be easy to roll over, you know, butterflies year after year because that's what that kid knew. So I had a lot of misconceptions and worries about it. And I know that I'm not the only one and continue. I mean, there are still teachers who continue to have that sort of mindset. So they're fearful of the inquiry process. They don't understand how it works. I think a lot of them think that they do have to deepen, you know, dive into the deep end in order to do it. And a lot of them just don't even want to go there at all because of the fear of failure. Or again, like you said, putting kids under this very stressful, anxiety ridden sort of circumstance. So how do you structure your year uh, to provide for the slow release of responsibility and then ultimately the successful and engaging authentic learning to occur? Yeah, you know, I think you raised some really valid points, you know, all those fears and all those concerns you had around inquiry, you know, those aren't myths, like those are the realities in some schools. And, and to to be honest, I think that there are some misdefinitions of inquiry, you know, when, Mm. when, when we look up inquiry, when we do a little bit of digging, inevitably, you know, a lot of teachers find the free inquiry side of the spectrum, which is that messy space where students have a lot of control over the content and the demonstration of learning and the assessment piece and and kind of what Garrison experienced with me was was free inquiry and it really worked for Garrison and as I spoke briefly to you know that was the 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 error I made in revisiting inquiry was I threw all my kids into the free inquiry end of the pool too fast and too soon so a lot of those concerns I have as well as an inquiry teacher and so when I visit schools and I help them adopt an inquiry model we look at the spectrum of inquiry we look at the four types of inquiry so if we can imagine a swimming pool and a lot of my work revolves around the swimming pool analogy so if people find me online through the podcast they'll find that swimming pool graphic and so if we can imagine a swimming pool and the deep end of the pool is where our students have the skills and understandings to be successful with that deep learning model and inquiry. And that's what we call free inquiry. And that's where Garrison was, but we can't throw our students in the deep end. We have to start in the shallow and slowly transition through the types of inquiry to get to the deep end. So in my classroom, I'm a linear model. So I have my students from September to June. I start in the shallow end at the beginning of the year and structured inquiry. And that's where I'm modeling an inquiry unit of study. So when I encourage teachers to adopt an inquiry approach to, to teaching and learning, I ask them to take a unit of study that they've taught previously that is well planned. You know, your formative is tight, your summative is tight, uh, and you know your students are engaged in that in that learning. They they enjoyed that unit when you taught it in the past. Mm. And all I ask teachers to do is to revise that unit so it's framed in a in an essential question, that big ungoogleable question. <laughs> and that in itself is a skill, right? Like that's that's a workshop. Those are there are books around essential questions, but that's a really powerful piece. It's a model a unit of study that begins with an essential question and provocations. And once we model that, and then I encourage teachers to, of course, model their thinking throughout the unit. So when we bring in a resource 
to kind of tie or deepen our understanding of that essential question, I'm modeling the why behind that resource, the how it's connected to that essential question, the where I got that resource from. So we're looking at the research skills. And so in that structured unit, I've, I've planned everything. Like that's, that's my wheelhouse. It's teacher directed inquiry and I'm modeling, intentionally modeling all my thinking and all my planning throughout. So as you can see, when students witness the structured, it's preparing them for the free, the deep side of the pool. The other two types are a little bit, you know, kind of the in-between grounds between structured and free. So the next type is called control. Uh, again, I'm, I'm fully in control of controlled inquiry, but my students have more voice and choice and they start to take on more of a, an authentic role in some of the planning and some of the decisions in that unit of study. And then in guided inquiry, they take on even more of a meaningful role and more of the heavy lifting and more of the responsibility. And then in free, that's where they really take on the whole process of a unit of study. And, and you know, I, I love to say that in free inquiry, the more voice and choice my students have, the more structures and processes I've implemented to help them be successful in free mm -hmm. inquiry. So free inquiry is not free time. It's, it's accountable time. It's me facilitating and supporting and really being in inquiry with students, you know, elbow to elbow with them, supporting them one on one. And that's where really powerful differentiation occurs when I'm actually working next to a student rather than in front of a class trying to differentiate to 30 students. I can differentiate for one student to truly meet their needs. And so, as you mentioned, both books are, are rich in the how. I think the why behind inquiry is really clear. I think Educators around the world are talking about how we need to do things differently for our students and how the model that we've been used to over our you know, careers and, and as a learner, as a student, it, you know, I may have survived it. That doesn't mean it was good for me. The world <laughs> has changed. And so the why behind inquiry is really clear. It's the how. And I think this is where the books really come into play and conversations like this are really powerful because we can start to focus on, okay, well, how can we transition into inquiry and how can it not be, as you referred to, messy and, you know, butterflies every year for the rest of their <laughs> educational journey? How can it kind of be a balance between the teacher and the learner? Yes. And that's what my work really tries to strike is, well, there is a balance there. There is the teacher facilitating, but also the teacher leading as we should in, in our specific kind of grade levels and teaching areas, there's some really rich things that we need to get across to our students. And it needs to be teacher-centered inquiry before we get into student-centered inquiry. And striking that balance is what I challenge teachers to think about and reflect on in their practice. And that's where I think my work really supports them in, in adopting you know, powerful, rich, authentic inquiry. I totally agree. And I think that's exactly it. I think it's, I think a lot of people are just fearful that the little bits and pieces that, that really culminate to a, a better sense of sort of the world and the understanding of kind of navigating, it's, you can't really do um, free inquiry without those bits and pieces. So I think it's so important for, for teachers to hear that part, that we're not saying throw everything out. It's really about integrating it. And then once, once you can get beyond that, it's pretty incredible what some of these students can do in terms of taking ownership and, and having agency over their learning. So I really appreciate you spelling that out. I want to talk a little bit about this concept of the dip, which I find really fascinating. So 
there are a number of different authors and, and creatives who have written on the challenges of engaging in the creative process through projects or art. And Dr. Brene Brown calls it day two. Stephen Pressfield, who did The War of Art, calls it The Resistance. And then Seth Godin describes it as The Dip. So his definition is, at the beginning, when you first start something, it's fun. Over the next few days and weeks, the rapid learning you experience keeps you going. Whatever your new thing is, it's easy to stay engaged in it. And then the dip happens. The dip is the long slog between starting and mastery. The long slog that's actually a shortcut because it gets gets you where you want to go faster than any other path. So how do you support yourself and your students through the inevitable dip that comes with this kind of learning? The dip is where many people quit. It's just too hard. How do you keep going and how do you keep your students going through it? Yeah, I'm so thrilled that you raised this. You know, um, well, first and foremost, I, I talk about just what you're referring to with my students. You know, I, I call it the roller coaster of inquiry mm. and that excitement and that anticipation and then like the fear and dread and uncertainty. And then when the <laughs> excitement wears off, right? It's like, oh, this is this is more work than I thought it was going to be. I thought I was exploring a passion. It turns out he's wanting me to work on my passion and where's the fun here. And, mm. and, and then of course the uncertainty of not finding what you wanted to find, right? Like, Oh, I thought my inquiry was taking me in one path and now it's taking me in another. And so when I referred to earlier about modeling and, and reflecting out loud with my students, this is something that we talk about in inquiry often is the uncertainty of it all, the highs, the lows, that, that social and emotional side to learning that, you know, in the traditional classroom, we don't really get to talk about because it's kind of like, you know, we're always tapping our wrists, right? Like we got to mm. get through this. We got to get through this. We don't have time to talk about you and how you're feeling about your learning, which is so backwards and wrong. Yes. And so I, I love the dip. I love the roller coaster in the sense that it's it really is a great metaphor for what we should uh, kind of prepare for in inquiry. And so absolutely, I talk about it. That's number one. And number two, you know, I firmly believe that passions you know, they just don't happen as you referred to a Seth Godin. It was, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, passions don't happen, you know, overnight. They happen because we stick through that slog and that, that dullness and that, that tediousness and, and the bore of work and slowly over time through the highs and lows, you know, of sticking to something, it turns into a passion, something that we truly love and we love it, not just because it makes us feel great, and the endorphins are flowing when we're doing it, but because we did slog through all those hardships. And, and that to me is the true, you know, power in inquiries when yeah. we could talk about the perseverance, we could talk about the grit and the growth mindset, but it's connected to the authenticity of the student's experience. And so really when that happens, that's, that's like my bread and butter time. That's where I'm, you know, doing the student conferencing where, you know, I, my students are all working quote unquote, but I'm calling students over I'm modeling what they could be doing. I'm asking them those guiding questions where I'm just not saving the day, right? That's I think that's the worst thing we can do in that slog is just kind of throw them the life preserver and save them from the storm that they're in. Really, it's what kind of guiding questions can I ask my students to get through this on their own with me at their side? So 
you know, one thing that I love to have up in my classes, uh, and you know, if you've seen any webinars I host from my classroom, is I've got all the graphics from my books and the book with Rebecca yeah. uh, up in my classroom. And so they're actually teaching tools. Like I, I point to them and I talk about them and I ask my students to reflect on them. So, you know, there's this one beautiful one that Rebecca created for Diving Inquiry, which is kind of like this adventure map of inquiry. And it's love got these little points and, and it really does help us see that even though it's uncertain and it's kind of, you know, an adventure and there's risk involved, you know, eventually we're going to get to the peak of the summit. We're going to get to this place where we're really proud of what we accomplished and it's not going to be easy. And so again, by having those maps and by having students understand that what they're feeling, those anxieties and those nerves and that, that vulnerability and that honest kind of uh moment, that's kind of expected. And that's what we really want. You know, the the manufactured stress around standardized testing and what that's doing to our students and their well-being, that's not healthy. And that's not preparing them for tomorrow. What's going to prepare them for the world of tomorrow is to, you know, kind of figure out how to navigate these moments in their learning where they're actually going to persevere through them. And so, you know, the dip, I try to model it. Uh, I try to talk about it. And I definitely try to meet with my students one-on-one as much as I can when it occurs. Love that. And I think that's exactly it. I think that's where my thinking goes as well is in this very, very uncertain world where really no amount of content can really prepare our kids. They need to really be adopting uh, an entrepreneurial mindset where they're able to identify problems in the community and in the world around them or even you know, issues that that they want to figure out so that they can scratch their own itch if it's an interest or a, a service or a product or whatever it is, and then be able to have that skill that gets them through that dip so that maybe on the other side of it, they actually create something that other people will use that will be of use to people. And, and I think that that ultimately is an extremely scarce resource that most of us, um, I mean, you know, a lot of us tend to want to give up when it gets hard. And, you know, when I think of STEM in, in, I mean, at any level, but, but, you know, STEM activities can be really painfully difficult with kids. And it's sort of part of this inquiry process, or it can be. And so really pushing beyond that, and then, and then, you know, kind of building this muscle of, of perseverance and grit, like you said, and, and understanding the learning process is incredibly important. So I want to, can I I just interrupt you? I just want to point out something really powerful that you said, which was, you know, if we are wanting our students to leave our schools with this kind of entrepreneurial mindset, where they're able to kind of identify this authentic problem or, you know, genuine challenge in our community and our world and tackle that and, and kind of figure out, you know, at, at least a plan to solve that, you know, we, we don't need them to solve all the world's problems tomorrow. But, you know, can they kind of be in that muck and mire of, of authenticity? If, if that's our goal, and, you know, in some of our classrooms, they are answering like, you know, summary questions at the end of a chapter of a novel yeah. study right? Like those are the two bookends of learning right now. If if that's the experience of some of our kids, and then we want them to be kind of the innovators and problem solvers of the world of tomorrow, 
my goodness, we need scaffolding to help them through this transition. We need to be modeling the, the changes we're expecting them to kind of grow through in their new learning role in this inquiry model. And I couldn't agree with you more. Like that's definitely my goal for my students. But when I go and I visit schools and I hear teachers are kind of doing that same old thing, well, it really does force us to look at the transition, right? And look at how we can most powerfully support that transition into that really meaningful outcome that you re you refer to. Yes, absolutely. So I I'd like to switch gears just a little bit. And, and I'd like absolutely. to ask you, um, how do you think that, that inquiry-based learning helps facilitate inclusion within schools? Because I know that that's a real tricky point for a lot of people. And, and I think people want to be able to use inquiry to support, uh, you know, our range of students. How do you, how would you say that inquiry lends itself to inclusion within schools? Well, I think, you know, when, when, when the question is the students, you know, th there's an incredible amount of ownership over that. And that seems redundant. So let me just, you know, elaborate a bit on that. When, when the question is genuinely one that the student has created and, and they're engaged in exploring that question and, and they're tied to that. There's some Velcro there and Velcro is that kind of cognitive stick, right? Like they, they, there's that, that engagement and there's something there within them cognitively that they, they want to go and attach their research to. When that occurs in any student, whether they are, you know, kind of high academically achieving and, you know, super, I guess, quote unquote, capable to our students who are designated, who have challenges that are kind of, you know, ones that we have to support and nurture throughout their processes in schools, when, when they own that question, amazing things happen. And I think that's one piece that teachers have to kind of have some faith in and some trust in is that when the student owns it, wow, capability and ownership and potential, and then our assessment of them drastically changes. So let me just talk about the assessment piece really briefly. And, and again, this is a whole nother podcast, assessment <laughs> and inquiry. But really briefly, when I've assessed students' work in inquiry, as opposed to a structured unit of inquiry. So if we can imagine the deep end of the pool and the structured side of the pool. Let's imagine a class presentation, for example. So in a structured side, I've asked my students to perhaps do a class presentation on symbolism in a novel study that we've read uh, that's connected to a big essential question. And then I've asked them to present uh, at the end of the year in free inquiry, their capstone project. And students have chosen a topic that, again, they own that question. My assessment of them is always better at the end of the year. And it's not because I've taught them how to do amazing presentations. It's because all those nerves and stresses and anxieties around presenting are kind of, you know, taken off the table of the assessment because they are so confident in their topic because they are just so connected to it. And so when our students who have, you know, designations and IEPs, when they take ownership over their learning in such a manner as in inquiry, our assessment of them is really something transformational, something that they haven't experienced before and we haven't necessarily gathered from them before. So I, I asked student or sorry, teachers, educators who are thinking of adopting inquiry uh, in that inclusive ed kind of ecosystem to, to have some faith, give it a try and, and look at your assessment, look at how it changes over time. Uh, and then the second piece is, you know, I love having students 
kind of buddy up in inquiry. And I do this with kindergarten classes and grade threes. You know, I always hear from kindergarten teachers, well, inquiry is way too big for my littles. But when you buddy them up with some grade threes or grade fours and you tie a big with a little, that's what we call them, the bigs with the littles, yeah. uh, with kind of like a joint passion or interest or question, you know, there's some modeling and there's some sharing of that heavy lifting that occurs. Mm-hmm. And it really is a beautiful thing to see that natural collaboration and the creativity that that surfaces from that partnership. And so the same thing goes in, in my classroom. You know, if it, I always try to encourage students to find those natural synergies across inquiry kind of units and questions and passions and all the more powerful for students who kind of balance, balance each other's strengths and, and, and kind of, I guess you could say, challenges up. You know, if a student is, you know, having a tough time with the research faculty of an inquiry and they're buddied up with someone who is a strong researcher, you know, they're, they're, they're doing the heavy lifting together. And so I do encourage teachers to consider where we can have those natural collaborations occur um, and I think the inclusive classroom, those those collaborations are, are right there in front of you because the empathy and the care and the relationship that is built throughout those collaborations, it's super powerful stuff. It is, absolutely. And I think what you're touching on as well is this idea of kind of rejecting this finite game where it's you win, you lose, you pass, you fail. And it's really about this infinite possibility of collaboration, which is our world, right? And it is kind of the emerging business mentality as well is really if we're working together and we're, you know, like Google's doing this 20% time and whoever can kind of wrangle as many people interested in the project as possible, super. And then that project's a go. And it's sort of a very different approach. And so I think, like, I would absolutely agree with you. And I think it would be really interesting if we sort of let go of that that test-taking sort of mentality of pass and fail and individual silos kind of sitting in these desks and really embrace that collaborative approach because I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, some of the most amazing kind of inclusive ed or spec ed spaces I've visited in the last few years, really one, one piece, one kind of characteristic or hallmark of those spaces has been that the students, not only do they know their, their challenges and their strengths, you know, their IEP, not only do they know their IEP really, really well, but they were part of building that. They were part of building their inquiry plan. It it wasn't something that happened with the teacher and with the parent and with, you know, a a counselor or or a, a learning assistance teacher. It was built with the student at the center and having their voice be a part of that plan. And so then when in the classroom, when the student knows their strengths and knows what perhaps is going to require a little bit more of the heavy lifting or the collaboration or the leaning on the teacher as facilitator, you know, those moments are, are a lot more, I guess you could say, manageable and a lot more natural because the student has ownership over that as well. So that that was something that I've seen time and time again in those powerful inquiry spaces I visited with inclusive ed kind of spaces. You know, the students not only know their IEP, but they were a part of building that IEP. That's incredible. And I think that must be so empowering. And and to be able to have the students involved in that whole process and for them as well, because otherwise it just it it must leave them feeling so confused and unsure and insecure and and anxious when they don't understand what's happening and scared. I think how scary to not know what's going on, but to know that something, something makes you feel 
other, you know, in the classroom. And so, so it's really, really neat for them to have agency over that. I will never forget as a new teacher wanting to ask my students what they wanted to learn and having a mentor teacher tell me, oh, you just can't do that. So he really discouraged me from asking them to be part of the learning you know, the learning process and even the topics because he just thought it wasn't possible. And at the time, I just, I sort of let it go. And I felt, I felt diminished by that. And I I didn't feel courageous and enough to be vulnerable and stick my neck out and maybe be that teacher who did something a little different at the time. I think it would be very different now, but at the time I really didn't. So what would you say to a teacher who wants to engage in inquiry in and in a school or an environment that doesn't really welcome the process or recognize it. So all of the messiness that may come with it, even, even when it's very structured and, and guided, what would you say to that teacher? And do you think it's possible to dip your toe into inquiry within the context of a more constrained, maybe traditional school? Yeah, so great, great question. And and so and I've got a few things to, to, to speak to there. Um, you know, first and foremost, some of the most amazing things I've seen in schools that I've visited in the last few years. And, and so I, I, it should be said, I'm a full time teacher, but I'm also kind of a full time consultant. I do a lot of travel around the world supporting schools and adopting real you know, rich, authentic scaffolded inquiry. And, and some of the most amazing things I've seen in schools uh, is not because of amazing leadership or an amazing culture in the school. It's it's kind of happening in a classroom in spite of a lack of amazing leadership and a lack of an amazing culture, right? And so mm. although I've been in schools that do have great leadership and a great staff kind of collaborative value of inquiry, the most amazing stuff I've seen has happened in spite of that. So that that shouldn't be something that you know not having a courageous leader or administrator like I did with with my leadership with Garrison or a staff such as the staff that committed to Garrison that shouldn't you know bring you down and that shouldn't be something that deters you from doing what's right for your students and being present in the moment minute by minute hour by hour day by day in meeting their needs. And that's where inquiry really is a powerful approach to learning is you're meeting the needs of the students that you're facing beyond the tests and beyond the prescribed learning outcomes and the standardization of curricula. It is meeting the students in front of you and forming that relationship. And I think no educator in the world would deny how powerful that is. Relationship, relationship, relationship. So, you know, that's something to keep in mind, you know, you don't need amazing leadership or a culture to do amazing things in inquiry. You know, the other piece is uh, dream big, like have that four year plan of what you want your classroom to look like four years from now, but start small. It doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen in a single year. These big shifts that we want to make, whether they're assessment or curriculum, and specifically we're talking about inquiry here, you know, these are going to happen over time, little by little by little. And that's where I think my work really is well received by educators, because it really does spell out those small things that you can implement day in and day out that will turn into those transformational changes over years. So, you know, whether it's provocations as a start point to learning or modeling your passion and your interests as an educator or having, you know, uh, getting outside the classroom. Oh my goodness. You know, just as I spoke to with Garrison, you know, so much powerful stuff happened outside the four walls of our classroom. So quite literally getting 
outside of your classroom and going into nature and going for a nature walk or an observation walk and taking, you know, observation notes of something that you see in nature or in your community. Just that is starting to challenge some of the status quo and some of what, you know, the traditional classroom values in terms of learning. Uh, and then, you know, the third one is find your kind of playful pedagogical sandbox, if you will. You know, I always encourage teachers to find that one person on staff that you want to play with, that you want to ask a big question around teaching and learning and kind of chew on that question and unpack that question and grapple with it a bit. And once you have that one person, you know, once you have one, it turns into two. Once you have two, it turns into three. And before you know it, over the course of that four-year journey, other people are going to start looking in your classroom and seeing what's going on because they're going to hear of it from your students. And that grassroots movement where it starts with the students, filters into the families, and then eventually comes to the staff and the leadership, that's where capacity kind of shifts. That's where the balance shifts over to, oh my goodness, people want to take on what we've been doing for a few years. And you feel that incredible sense of kind of validation mm -hmm. and, and a sense of belonging, but that doesn't happen in a single night. So that playful pedagogical sandbox, like, you know, what doors are wide open to what it is that you're considering doing in your practice. And, and I don't even look at the doors that are partly open to me. I look for the doors that are wide open. Mm -hmm. And those are the partnerships I try to leverage and try to, you know, nurture first and then slowly those doors that I said were partly open, once those teachers see what's happening with those other colleagues, those doors are going to open up more. And, and that's when I look at those collaborations as being more kind of opportunities for that rich change that happens. So, you know, um, I visit schools all the time where, uh, or sorry, I shouldn't say, I, I, I wouldn't say I visit schools all the time. I'll meet people at events all the time who pose just the challenge that you pose, which was, I've got nobody in my school. What do I do? You know, just as you and I met, we live in the same city, but we mm -hmm. met online. Isn't that a beautiful thing? We yes. found our kind of playful sandbox mm -hmm. online. And, you know, 10 years ago, five years ago, that didn't exist. It really is a beautiful time to be an educator where we can collaborate across the world. And these questions that we're asking of ourselves on this podcast and with those staff, those like-minded teachers in our schools, uh, those are kind of global questions. Like other teachers around the world are asking the same questions and we just need to connect with them. We need to find those like-minded people and begin that growth and that change together. I just can't stop nodding my head. <laughs> Absolutely. Awesome. I just think it's such powerful, powerful stuff. And also it's this whole idea of tribes and, and finding that, you know, finding these like-minded people and the ability for us to connect. And I just love it over the internet and what that has afforded us in terms of just being able to create all sorts of, you know, networks and, and just the sense of belonging is incredible. So Absolutely. I 100% agree. And I've found that really surprising, actually, in the work that I've been doing. I've been really um, just humbled and, and honored to to connect with people that are like-minded and love to dig into this and and it's wonderful. And like you said, I think I think sometimes it's not about convincing the people around you that have their door half open. It's really about seeking the people whose hearts and eyes and minds are already open to this and so so you're not kind of trudging uphill to kind of convince people around you but sort of doing your own thing in support of and with the support from 
those people who who are your tribe essentially on some level. So I Absolutely, love that. Yeah. And and you know I I'm I'm not in the game of convincing. I'm not in the game of, you know, visiting a school or going to an event and trying to, you know, convince people and persuade them that inquiry is what they should be doing. Quite quite opposite. I just have an open door policy. I'm an open book and you know in my classroom where I teach I I actually have a massive garage door that opens up. And so, you know, anyone can see what I'm doing at any time. And and that's kind of my practice, you know, and, and I let that speak for itself. I share the stories, I share the evidence I share in my work as a writer and a consultant, what inquiry looks like for me, and the inquiry spaces I visit around the world. And if that's of interest to other people, then I'll support them in adopting a similar model in their classrooms and in their schools and in their organizations. But, you know, as educators, you know, we, we shouldn't be in the game of convincing anybody that what we're doing is better than what they're doing. I, I don't propose that at all. On the contrary, I want to honor those teachers who are ready to make some change uh, by having them, you know, open up their door when they're ready. And and that's the powerful thing about education is that we are lifelong learners. We're always kind of reflecting and tinkering and changing our practice to better meet the needs of our students. Yeah, absolutely. So before we get to these rapid fire question, this, this podcast episode just went so fast. I can't believe it. I could talk to you forever. Um, (laughs) I want to ask you a little bit about kindness inquiry. So can you speak to any particular stories or inquiry projects that have been born out of a desire to serve the community? Because that's of that's sort of a personal interest of mine. And, and I'd love to hear any sort of ideas or, or actionable sort of projects that have come out of this. Yeah, you know, two come to mind right away. And one is uh, one that I structured with my students. And one is uh, a colleague at Oak Bay High School that I teach with that she has structured with hers. So I'll speak to mine really briefly. You know, annually, I take my my students, my grades 11s and 12s to uh, our local elementary school, and we call it the buddy project. And so we buddy up with a younger uh, class, whether it's kindergarten, grade one or grade two. And it's 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 an inquiry veiled in a literacy project. And what I mean by that is, you know, the bigs eventually choose a little that they have made some kind of connection with. And we visit this 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 buddy uh, classroom once a week for about maybe eight weeks. And so there are eight visits that we embark on over our time together. And they essentially they co-write a book and the little Uh, you know, pitches an idea and the big writes the story through prompting from the little. uh, And then the little does all the artwork. And at the end, the big gifts this little uh, the book and they visit our school on a field trip and, and, you know, we have some food and we celebrate and the artifact of our time together is this book that they co-wrote. But underlying all that are some really rich foundational kind of characteristics and dispositions that are really powerful for our learners to hone and sharpen and elevate. So things like empathy and things like, you know, compassion and care and patience. And, you know, time and time again, when the littles visit our school, inevitably they have parents help them on this little field trip, right? And I'll have parents come to me during this field trip to our school saying, you know, my son and I, we were at the grocery store and my son started to tug on my arm and he said, mom, there's my buddy, there's my buddy. (laughs) And my son went over and introduced me to the buddy who is working at the produce at Mm -hmm. our local shopping store, our grocery store, or you know, our, the big buddy was the lifeguard at the swimming pool for swimming lessons. Like Uh time and time again, these ties in this buddy project 
obviously filter into our community. And I think that's the beautiful thing about the Buddy Project is we choose our community elementary school. So there's immediate empathy from our bigs. They're, they're actually going into the classrooms and through the halls that they walked only 10 short years ago. Mm. And they are putting themselves in the shoes of a little. And when I ask my bigs to choose a little to work with eventually, you know, after two or three visits, I say, well, who do you want to spend the rest of the project with? The reasons behind their selection are always deeply personal. Things like, you know, well, my, the, the buddy I'd like to work with is really shy. And when I was young, I was, I was shy too. So I want to help them be a little bit more confident or, you know, a big will say, you know, so-and-so uh, really loves hockey and I love hockey. So there's my tie. You know, I had a student last year say I was really anxious in school and I had a tough time because in elementary school, I was always pulled out for reading support and so-and-so the little buddy gets pulled out for reading support as well. So I want to be there for them. Like, how cool is that? Very, right? very cool. And yeah. so those are the the really richly kind of authentic ties to uh, kind of a community inquiry. Uh, and of course, I, I ask my students to reflect on this process what was meaningful to them, what, what they'll remember in five years from this process. And undeniably, it's all those things that I mentioned, the empathy, the care, the compassion, uh, and the community ties. So that's one that I do each year. Um, a colleague of mine at Oak Bay, her name's Lisa Green. And Lisa teaches uh, a bunch of courses, but the one course I want to speak to is her English 12 course. And she's embarked on this, this podcast inquiry where essentially her entire class throughout the year is is making a series of podcasts and mm -hmm. right now it's like the 11th hour right like our students had grad dinner dance last weekend they had the big block party they have convocation in three weeks you know it's beautiful out it's sunny out so all the distractions are like full-on right yeah and they are literally releasing their podcasts this month of all these series and episodes that these students have created wow. and what's really neat is that all the episodes the common thread is community. Mm -hmm. And so there's a group of students whose community thread is to go over to a few of our local Oak Bay senior living uh, care facilities and interview some of our Oak Bay senior citizens mm -hmm. and ask them, you know, what's the story you want people to hear? What's, and that's just what a vague, broad question, isn't it? And, and through these interviews, these stories, these rich, authentic, meaningful stories, and these, like, these stories are going to be archived yes. in our podcast so that students in, in subsequent years can revisit these stories and talk about the community connection, right? Like, Open wow. News is on it in a heartbeat. Like, that's yeah. our local <laughs> newspaper. You know, oh, my goodness, we have teenagers working with seniors, you know, asking them these richly authentic, essential questions. Uh, and so right now they're kind of in that 11th hour. Yes. Uh, and, and getting ready to release a bunch of episodes. I tell you, the coolest things occur when you see these students take on an authentic ownership over learning. Students who maybe were struggling in that traditional model are coming out of their shell. Uh, you know, I had a student, I had one podcast that we heard as a staff maybe three weeks ago, and it was just a little snippet of a podcast. Mm -hmm. And the student who was hosting the podcast, he was that student who was pretty disconnected, wasn't handing stuff in, uh, didn't really see the point. And he's out there at like 5 a.m. interviewing people on the street about their authentic story. Like, wow. I know that sounds kind of dangerous and kind of, <laughs> kind of wow, really. But, you know, through the consent of parents and through the project structure and support, this student who wasn't really loving school 
is getting up at like four in the morning to go do this project uh, with Mustard Seed downtown uh, and really make a difference in the community, which is super, super powerful. So, you know, when you talk about kindness and empathy and kind of that community place-based inquiry, those are definitely two stories. And I've, you know, globally, there are, there are a bunch like the power of Twitter, again, when we talk about online connecting and the, the, the PLN, daily I see someone, you know, tag me or use our hashtag inquiry mindset where they're sharing some kind of place-based, nature-based, community-based inquiry. And it's so inspiring to see these artifacts of really meaningful, authentic learning. It is so inspiring. I love, I love both of those examples. So thank you for bringing those. Thank you for asking. Wow, this has been an incredible conversation. Um, I guess we'll, we'll zip over to the rapid fire questions. But before we do, is there any last, um, anything that you would like to say that you haven't had a chance to say yet? No, you know, just uh, find me online. You know, I know you, you've shared our online spaces already, but find us online and, and find that hashtag and really do look at those artifacts as kind of inspirational points and, and those kind of little nuggets of inspiration. So you can see what the potential is once you dive in and once you have some faith that you're going to embark on this inquiry journey, those little, you know, artifacts and the sharing that's occurring online using the hashtag really are those pieces that are going to kind of inspire you to stick with it and know that on the other side, there are some pretty amazing benefits for our students. Yeah. I love that. Thank you. And just share what that hashtag is again. So the hashtag is inquiry mindset. So find that, uh, you know, in our new book, inquiry mindset, you know, at the end of every chapter, we call on the reader to share to the inquiry mindset hashtag. Um, and it's really blown up. Like I hadn't anticipated how well it would be used uh, so quickly. Um, and as I said, you know, I wake up every morning to just hundreds of notifications of people sharing around the world. And, and some of it has nothing to do with, you know, a physics inquiry or a chemistry inquiry or a math inquiry. But what it does have to do with is genuine student driven inquiry. And that is just a beautiful thing. That is. That's so amazing. Thank you. Thank you. So could you define what kindness means to you? Ooh, kindness means, um, wow, that's such a good question. <laughs> uh, kindness means a little bit of giving and a little bit of being open and comfortable with accepting. Okay, good one. What book what or books, books have you gifted most often to people? Oh my goodness, I've gifted uh, Make Just One Change. And it is essentially uh, how to ask rich and powerful questions uh, in the inquiry classroom. So of course I gift it because in all my work as an inquiry teacher, it is the one artifact outside my own work that I feel will truly kind of elevate the inquiry classroom. Um, so that's definitely something that I buy multiple copies of it and I have it in my bag. And, you know, if I don't give out my books, I give out that book. Yes, absolutely. And do you want to do you want to just say the titles of your books and just so yeah, everybody? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So my first book is titled Dive in Inquiry, Amplify Learning and Empower Student Voice. And that's been out for a few years now. And that one really uh, was most widely received K to higher ed, but the examples in there are middle school, high school. Uh, and then my most recent publication is with uh, Rebecca Bathurst Hunt, who's an amazing kindergarten teacher. Mm -hmm. um, and so we co-wrote Inquiry Mindset. And that really is a specific lens on the K to seven classroom. So the elementary years and really having that natural curiosity and passion discovery based kind of energy around learning be something that is harnessed and supported throughout those younger years. 
so that when they come to me in high school, they're kind of ready to inquire more deeply and more powerfully. Love it. Thank you. What one skill or superpower does a teacher need to lead with in order to be effective? You know, it's got to be for me to just be present and be in the moment and that ability to turn 180 in a heartbeat and meet the needs of a student uh, and and that that always changing need, right? You know, one student needs you in terms of maybe a skill or, you know, I'm an English teacher, so maybe it's a writing support. And then I turn around and it's a social emotional need. And then I turn around and it's, you know, uh, an extension, some flexibility or some understanding is needed. So just to be present and the ability to shift in a heartbeat. Yes, love it. The pivot. <laughs> yeah, the pivot. Absolutely. What one skill or superpower does a principal need to lead with in order to be effective? You know, I think a really powerful principal uh, listens um, and then supports, you know, and, and powerfully supports. And the most amazing administrators and principals I've worked with have been the ones that can see the potential in teachers and in students and really uh, supports them in, in reaching their potential. And sometimes that's getting the heck out of the way. And sometimes that's providing the processes and structures to have them reach their potential. So, you know, uh, the most powerful administrator I've ever met, he was an amazing listener. Uh, and when he spoke, you know what he had to say, you knew what was coming, was really, really uh, meaningful and on point and uh, was well-informed. Mm, that's great. Last one. What question or quote would you print on one of those quote cups that are sold in big bookstores that would be read by millions? Wow. Oh, my goodness. Uh, you can be anything. Just stick with it. Nice. Yes, that's a great one. That's perfect. This was Good. great. That's yeah, it. That's thank so you. <laughs> yeah, thanks for hosting me. And, and uh, yeah, that was so much fun. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This has been another episode of Kind Sight 101, the podcast. For links to resources mentioned in this episode, visit smallactbigimpact.com and click on our podcast and choose this episode number. Now, I'd love to give my audience a heads up about my new book, which will provide ideas, actionable strategies, and inquiry-based approaches to creating kinder classroom through serving the community. Subscribe to my blog, for more information. Now I would love to hear from you. What's the biggest insight that you gain from this conversation? Head over to our website, smallactbigimpact.com, leave a comment on our podcast page, or tag and connect with us on social media with the hashtag smallactbigimpact to share your inspiring story of kindness. Can't wait to hear from you.